Amen. Young, grab a seat. Uh, if you have a Bible with you or if you want to follow along, there should be a hardback black one somewhere around you. You can use that. Uh, we're going to be camping out tonight in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be taking a look at Ephesians chapter 5. And while you're finding your place there, I just want to introduce myself for those of you who may not know me. Uh, my name is Ian O'Donnell. I'm a student pastor here. Um, FBC, and I just want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here tonight. Thank you for, for choosing to join us tonight. Um, it's Friday. It's the end of the week. There's a ton of different things you could be doing. And I, me, myself, uh, the rest of the FBC team, we're, we're so grateful uh, that you chose to come join us and hang out with us this evening. Um, I learned uh, in my freshman year of college when I was at UT um, I took a communication class and, uh, where I learned really just kind of the, the basics in regards to public speaking and giving a presentation um, to an audience. And one of the first things you were called to do or was wise to do was to give your audience uh, reason to why they should listen to you. What credibility do you have for us to actually pay attention and listen, listen to what you have to say? Um, so what reason do you all have to listen to me tonight as we talk about uh, when we get, we're going to dive into biblical manhood, what that looks like, which also means we're going to talk about what it means to be a biblical father and a biblical husband. I know the temptation tonight could easily become where you decide to tune me out or ignore what I have to say because I'm not really there yet. I'm engaged, but I am not married, um, and I am not a father. I don't have kids. So the question could very much come up like, hey, Ian, um, I don't why should I listen to you? I mean, you're not, you haven't necessarily walked in those phases of life yet. Um, what gives you the credibility to stand up here and, and talk to us about the subject? And that's a fair question. Um, but I just want to, I want us to consider that tonight, I'm, I'm not giving you life advice. I'm not giving you life skills. I'm teaching from, from God's word. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I don't really want you to listen to anything I necessarily say. I want you to listen and hear um, from what God has brought forth, and I pray He speaks uh, simply just through me tonight and what He has called us to be. That is my hope. Um, so I'm going to ask and request, don't let the enemy get a foothold in you tonight. Don't let there any, like if there's ever a portion where you're like, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I don't know if I want to do that. Don't let the enemy take a foothold in there just because of maybe what it says or maybe the, the messenger who's, who's trying to teach it, okay? Um, with all that said, I'm going to read our main text. We're going to start in Ephesians 5, verse 22. Um, we're going to go through verse 33. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump in, all right? So this is Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. And the Word of God says this. Wives, submit to your own, house, as your, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we ask you during this time, uh, God, would you speak to us? Would you, would you come near to us in this time? May we be able to know that you are, you are here with us tonight, uh, that we are not a bunch of guys who are just sitting here singing random songs and reading from a random book. God, we, we know you are alive, um, and your word challenges us. It calls to us, God, and I pray that we would listen. I pray that we would, we would, have, we would have the courage to consider what you have to say. And God, give us the boldness to draw near to you when you call us back. And I, God, I pray your words and your name would be remembered and not my own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, one more quick thing for my students in here, uh, middle schoolers and high school. I'm just going to let you know ahead of time, I'm going to say some words um, that you are going to have the, uh, the urge to giggle and laugh. And I'm going to ask you to... Uh, I'm going to call you to maturity here and say, hey, I understand I was there, but I'm going to ask you, um, what we're talking about tonight is not a laughing matter. Um, so even though there might be some words said that are like, mm, you, want to, you want to get that out of you? I'm going to ask for maturity, for growth tonight. Rain that in, all right? So tonight we're talking about uh, what makes a man a man. What, is, what does the Bible have to say about what actual biblical manhood is? Because if you were to... Take a look at the world right now. The idea of a man is constantly changing. It's constantly shifting from generation to generation, from culture to culture, country to country, even town to town. The definition of what a man is and what a man is not is changing. So I don't know about what, maybe what y'all grow up hearing about what a man was, but for me, um, in small town Castroville, Texas, that's in between Hondo and San Antonio, that's where I was raised, um, I was told a man is or does these types of things. You were to be tough. I was told you were to not be a sissy. When it came to situations, you are to handle it like a man, whatever that means. Um, when it comes to dating, you're to play the field, because that's what cool guys do. Um, you should show them who's boss. If you get knocked down, you need to be, you need to be able to pick yourself up. Um, if you're a man, you need to be able to know how to fix a car, or at least know how a car functions. Um, if you're a man, you need to be able to work on a grill and make fantastic burgers like we had tonight. It was awesome. I don't know about y'all, but I, I loved it. You need to be able to do that, or at least be remotely interested. You need to like meat and appreciate it. You need to either play football or have an opinion about football, right? And if, and if, if you're going to have an opinion about football, it needs to be the Dallas Cowboys. You're probably not saved. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Maybe, I don't know. I'll let you decide. But that's, that's what I grew up learning. This is what a man is. It's a person who does these things. But yet when I think about it, man, what about, what about all the men who are great artists, great writers, great poets, great painters? I mean, when you think about David, he was a guy, you were from, a, from like teenage years, he's slain a 10-foot giant and is still known as one of the greatest writers and po of poetry and songs that our world has ever known. So a man isn't necessarily one or the other. It's not simply actions here, because we clearly see that can be comprised of both. But also, it brings out this question, is manhood simply based on biology? Is manhood based on biology? Because if we're going to run with that idea, then you would have to call my seven-year-old cousin as a man. 
And let me tell you what, like he, he may have a penis. First time you ever heard that word in the church? You're welcome. He might have that, but I guarantee you, you can trust me, he is not a man. He is a boy. Now he might be considered male, but he is in no way, shape, or form a man. And let me tell you, I, I have so many friends my age, maybe a little younger, maybe even a little older, who look like me, can shave, but they are also nowhere near what a man is in regards to what the Bible has to say and the design called to us when God originally made us. There's a transition and something that must occur where this transition happens from boyhood into manhood. So what makes a man a man? If it's not biology and it's not certain characteristics, what makes a man a man? The Bible actually gives us a word for the calling on our lives as men and what we're supposed to be, and it's called headship. Uh, You can see it here in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So this is what we're running with here. We're like, what we're talking about here from the very beginning is this, this idea of headship. Now, most often, when I heard it growing up, especially uh, when it came to um, men and their relationships and biblical relationships, the call, the word that was always used, you're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to lead. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I just don't think it's a completely accurate statement. And here's why. Um, I've, ton- I've met a ton of great men who are strong leaders, great leaders in our, in our world, in our country. But at the same time, too, I can't ignore the fact that there are tons of great female leaders, too. Like it, 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 it doesn't make sense in my mind. I'm like, okay, we're leading, but they're leading, too, and we're only supposed to lead the home. Like, that, that bothered me a little bit. But what is undisputable, according to God's word, is this idea of headship. It is a calling only for the man that you are to be the head of the home, like Christ is head of the church. So headship is this idea, this definition that we are going to be running with tonight. And this is why, I mean, this is also another reason why I appreciate it so much. When you think about the head, um, the brain lies within your head. And what is the purpose of the brain? You ever thought about that? The purpose of the brain is the vitality and the nourishment of the body. That's literally what the brain is trying to do. If you read um, a certain verse 28... It says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So our role in regards to headship isn't this domineering boss of the family of our wife and of our kids. It's actually... Like a brain, we're doing everything we can to make sure we are serving them and making sure they're growing, they're thriving, and not merely just barely getting by. We're making sure they are flourishing under the house and the environment that we are trying to cultivate. That is what it means to demonstrate and actually walk out in headship. But how is headship actually played out practically in our day-to-day lives? Well, God gives us this answer um, if you look in Genesis 2. Um, you don't have to turn there. will be just one verse on the screen behind me. Um, Genesis 2.15 uh, tells us that the Lord God, he, he, he took Adam, he took man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? What are those two things? Work it and what? Keep it. Those are how headship is practically played out within our lives. We are to work and to keep. You and I, as men, we are called to work. 
And what it means to by keep, it means to be consistent. It means not give up. It means to keep going. But you and I are called to work. And I know from the first instant, it kind of seems like just job. And let me tell you, we'll get to it later. But there's a whole lot more to just working than just your day-to-day job. Where men are willing to walk into this idea of working. When you fulfill the outline designed by God that we are called to step into, the reality is, and all the stats say, and all the research says, humanity actually flourishes. Humanity actually thrives. But if men, if men choose to neglect the call, if, choose, if men choose to neglect what the Lord has called us to, humanity will suffer and humanity will slowly die. Because if you, if you look at this, where this is neglected, clearly, Humanity suffers. You can look at it economically, you can look at it sociologically or psychologically, however way you want, where men do not step into, and this is completely outside of the Bible, all secular studies agree, they're finally catching up. When you don't step into, when men do not step into the role given to them by God, humanity suffers. Your wives suffer. Our kids suffer. Our society at large suffers. I mean, you look at the places where poverty is absolutely ruling the area and crime is heavy. It's usually always plagued with men who don't step into their place as husbands, who don't step into their place as fathers, and just really don't step into their place as men in general. Therefore, laziness, laziness, a lack to fight for more than yourself, a lack to be able to see beyond yourself and your cares and your preferences and your desires, this leads to destruction. Laziness when it comes to your job, laziness when it comes to your wife, your kids, and most of all, laziness when it comes to your relationship with Christ. These are all things that if they're not fought for, can lead to destruction, can lead to suffering for the world around us. So God has ordained for us here that work, this idea of work that I'm grateful for because I think we can all understand that. This idea we have to push, we have to strain, we have to sweat, we need to go to bed exhausted. This idea of work is how we actually practically exercise and cultivate headship in our homes. Our head, and this is, that's just one place where headship can be demonstrated. We, it can be demonstrated in the church. It can be demonstrated at home or in the predominant culture. We don't have time for church predominant culture. So I'm just going to focus um, tonight on just our homes. And that's what we're going to be running with too. So Ephesians 5 is going to help us begin to see and take this outlook of what are we called to? What are we called to as, as men who are trying to walk out this idea of headship in the home? First, three ways. First one, sacrificial love to your wife. Headship is demonstrated at home through sacrificial love to your wife. You think about this, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands. And guys, if you're not married yet, be ready, because it's coming for you. And you want to be able to walk into this with confidence and demonstrate that you're ready to do this even when you're not married. But for husbands in the room, the call for us is to sacrifice ourselves, like Christ sacrificed His life for us. 
our call each and every day, first and foremost, and this is, I know this is difficult. I'm not even completely there yet, but I, I, I can already imagine how hard it's going to be. After an exhausting day at work, who knows what happened at work, and you have to come in, you need to say a prayer, take a deep breath, and enter the threshold, not wanting to put your feet up on the lazy boy, but first and foremost, going and kissing your wife and saying, Honey, I love you. How was your day? How can I help? Headship is demonstrated first and foremost in sacrificial love to your wife. And it means being willing to do the hard things. It means will, being willing to get up and help. Hey, honey, how can I help, how can I help with dinner tonight? Hey, is there, can, while, you're, while you're doing the dishes, do, can I help with making sure the kids get their bath and get them into bed? And even when the kids are finally asleep, and it seems like, okay, finally you can take time to me. That's when you have to be willing to maybe stay up a little later and actually check in on your wife. Don't forget why you married her. Spend time with her. Ask her how her day is. Ask her how work was. Ask her how her day with the kids were. Whatever it is. Spend time with her. Cultivate that. Ask her what she's reading in God's word. Ask her how her relationship with Jesus is. Fight for this. We don't come home to dominate and order and demean them around. We come home to serve and to sacrifice and lay down our lives. Why? Because it's the exact same thing Christ did for us first and foremost. And he has put the calling upon men to do the same. Man, if you, if you look in the garden in Genesis 3 where Eve, Eve ate of the tree. Eve was the first one who sinned and handed it. Adam should have stopped him, but he is an idiot. He should have stopped it, but Eve ate it first. Who did, who did God call for? He called for the man. He called for Adam. You are the head. Therefore, you lay down the sacrifice. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So husbands, go home to serve. Don't, not to be served. Okay? Secondly, men, we are in charge of the spiritual climate of the home. We are in charge of the spiritual climate of the home. And I... Um, I got permission to share this story. Um, a couple, um, I think it was back in December, um, I was having a conversation with one of the dads, um, and he was talking to me about a class he really enjoyed, a class he, he, he was, it's really just kind of impacted his heart, and he was sharing me all about it, and he was really excited about it, and he ended the conversation kind of sharing with, with me and saying like, you know what, that would be a really cool thing to tell the students, teach the students about. And I, I was kind of taken aback by it, and I was like, yeah. You're right. It, it would be a really cool thing for me to teach them that. But you know what would probably be even better? If you taught them that. If you went and taught that to your wife and to your kids. Because the reality is, men, the spiritual climate of the home, the spiritual direction of the home is on you. Father, specifically talking to you right now. At the end of the day, you are held accountable for your kids' faith. Until they, until they grow up and they're gone. But until, as long as they're under your house, you are responsible for your kids' faith. That's not on me. It's not on Mike and it's not on Melinda. That is on you. Like my, my, my job isn't, isn't, isn't for me primarily to teach them and you reaffirm that. The, it's actually supposed to be the other way around. Like I would love to know that you are all teaching your, your, your children, your sons and your daughters things of Christ and I'm the one who's constantly reaffirming that. 
It needs to be happening at home. So are you cultivating an environment where you are fighting for and creating space where Jesus is discussed, where reading the Bible is encouraged, where questions about faith can come up and not be shot down? Is it a place where it's safe to actually discuss and talk about? And I know, and I know the, the, the immediate reaction could be like, well, I've always wanted to do that, but I don't know how. I've always wanted to do that, but I, I don't know how to lead a Bible study. I don't, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I just completely teach heresy the entire time? I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that either. But I would love to hear that. I would love more than anything to hear a, a, a parent, specifically a father, come up to me and be like, I want to teach my kids. I want to walk them through the Bible. I want to walk them through a study. Can you help me? I don't know how. I would love that. That's, that's like another half of my job. Like, I love my students, but there's a whole other half of my job that is devoted to helping and hanging out and equipping parents to be able to disciple their kids at home. I would love it if you would approach me and say, hey, I have some questions. Hey, can you help me to do this? I would love to equip you. Mike would love to help give you some resources. That's what we're here for. But you've got to be willing to, one, first make it a priority. Say, Jesus will be a priority in this house. And second, if you can't do it on your own, have the humility to ask for help. Like, unfortunately, humility is not a trademark of men, and that's not a good thing. But Christian men, we are called to humble ourselves and say, it's, it's all right to ask for help. It's okay. We would love to be able to walk alongside you and your family in growing closer to Christ. There's nothing I would love more. But men, if right now, if maybe if Jesus isn't, isn't the focus of your home, consider this, what is what are you making the most important thing in your house right now? Is it a TV show? Is it a, is it a video game? Is it Netflix? Is it a sport? Is it hunting? Is it fishing? Is it some other hobby that I'm, that I'm forgetting? What tone are you setting in the home as saying this is most important? Because the reality is, man, every, every single time you choose to do one of those things and neglect time with Christ or choose to do one of those things and miss time at this church, even though you're not explicitly saying with your mouth, you are implicitly telling them each and every time, reaffirming over and over and over again that whatever this thing is, is more important than the things of God. And like I said, you would probably never say that. But what your actions are communicating and training your children to believe and understand is that whatever this is, is more important than spending time with Jesus. What are you making the central primary thing of the home? Is it whatever this other thing is or is it knowing Jesus and making him known to your family, to your neighbors, to your, to your co-workers, to Wimberley? What's the focus of your house? Headship is demonstrated in sacrificial love to your wife and setting the spiritual climate of the home. And then lastly, in provision. Now, provision is always a fun one because um, I think the automatic thing is like it's trinkets and toys and material possessions. But the call really, it's, it's so much more than that. And I, I want to think about it this way in regards to who we are and who we are as men um, or actually as people. People, I believe, run with four cores to who they are. You have a physical self, you have a relational self, you have an emotional self, and you have a spiritual self. So first, we're, we're just going to go outside in. First begins with physical, and I think that's what most people think of when you think of provision. Uh, you make sure you provide for your family the basic needs. Do they have clothes? Do they have a place to live? Do they have food? The basic 
needs. Now, does this mean your wife gets everything she wants? Deep breath. No. Sigh. We're good. Yeah. We don't have to give them everything we want. Like it literally might be looking at the numbers a little, maybe like, hey, honey, can I have that? And I'm like, oh, let me look. Yeah? In seven years. Seven years. Yeah, you're good to go. Seven years, you can have that. It doesn't mean your, your wife or your family gets every single little thing they ask for. That's not, that's not what the idea of provision is. But it does mean that they should be provided with everything they need to live a godly life and a life that glorifies Jesus. They're provided with everything they need to live a godly life and a life that glorifies Christ. Now, I don't want to move on to yet because it's, I, I, this question always comes up. What if my wife makes more money than me? Well, cha-ching, but that doesn't mean you neglect your call to work. That is secondary. Whether your wife works or not, you are still called to work and get off the couch and not be an expert at whatever A, B, C, D, E hobby is. You are still called to work. All right? Second, relational. Uh, quick question. Have you all heard the phrase, I, uh, I still date my wife? Anyone? Anyone? Some people? All right. There, there's a weird thing happening lately where, for whatever reason, um, dating dies when you get married. There's a weird thing happening amongst marriages. For whatever reason, dating seems to disappear when we get married. But the reality is to pursue biblical manhood, that cannot be the case with you. That cannot be the case with us. So men, what are you doing to carve out time with your wife? What are you doing to carve out intentional time where you can actually spend time with her? When was the last time you took her out on a date outside of Valentine's or an anniversary or a birthday? When was the time you just took her out just because? When was the last time you just reminded her and showered her with love and affection, letting her know, I love you so much and I'm so glad we're married. I'm so glad we're together. Because, guys, you've got to think about this. One day the kids are going to go and you're going to be stuck with this person. And you can either make it seem like I'm stuck with this person or I'm so glad the kids are gone and I can finally be with my wife again with no distractions. But you've got to cultivate that home. You've got to cultivate that environment where it's either going to be really awkward and the kids are gone because you haven't actually spoken or have an intentional conversation with your wife in 10 years. Or it's going to be, thank God the kids are finally gone and we're not distracted anymore, and it's going to be awesome. But what's the climate like relationally for your home? What's that like? The same is also true for your kids. Dads with sons, create man nights. Create times where you can just go out and teach them what it means to actually be a godly man. And let them be able to learn from their father. Don't let, don't let the primary source of where they're learning to be a man and what it means to follow Jesus be from the culture, from the music, and from the movies. It needs to be from having intentional time with their fathers. Same goes for your daughters. Good Lord, take your daughters out on dates. I cannot wait to do that. She will take all my money. But I, I, I'm not, I cannot wait to take my daughter out on dates and to show her how much she's worth and how valuable she is in the eyes of Christ and that she deserves so much better than some idiot who can shave. Are you teaching that to your kids? Are you teaching that to your sons? Are you teaching that to your daughters? 
Third, emotional. We have an emotional core, and there's an emotional call for us to work. Now, uh, you know what men are really bad at across the board? Feelings. Just in general, this whole idea of feelings and emotions and these things involving our hearts, we are notoriously very bad at feelings. I mean, have you thought about that? That's probably why we tend to fight so much with women. Because they're, for the most part, are usually in tune with their feelings, and we, for the most part, usually are not. And it leads to conflict after conflict. And for too long, men have taken the stance of, well, it's just the way it is. I mean, we just shrug our shoulders as if it's whatever. And the reality is that cannot be true of you. And it cannot be true of me. We want to be able to create a home in a space where feelings, no matter how confusing they might be to us, where they can be discussed. Is your home a place where people can be honest? Is your home a place where feelings can actually be discussed and welcomed? Can your kids actually be honest with you? Can they actually tell you the truth and be themselves around you without the fear of getting picked on, ridicule, or receiving a sarcastic comment? I mean, too long, too long. Me growing up and me even in college and just watching parents from camps and different things like that. It's so, it's so hard for me to watch when parents cut down their own kids. And usually that's because for a, lot of, for a lot of guys, they don't really know how to respond in certain situations or they're afraid to be sensitive and they don't know how to handle maybe tougher situations and they either draw away and neglect or they release, they just give them some sarcastic comment that has ultimately done a whole lot more harm than good. What is the relation, or sorry, the emotional atmosphere of your home? Are you creating a safe place where people can come home, breathe, and be themselves and actually approach you and want to talk to you because they know you'll actually care and can give some positive feedback? Man, I heard an example from a couple in Dallas. Um, the guy was horrible at, his, at really being able to talk about how he feels. So he literally has a whiteboard full of emotional adjectives and his wife, they'll bring the whiteboard in for during conversations and the wife will ask him, hey, how you feel? And he'll, he'll, he'll use the board and he'll point at it and be like, uh, it's a mix from like happy and frustrated, whatever that word is. And men, if that's something you need to use to help understand, that's okay. Do it. Don't be ashamed to say, I don't completely understand what I feel. The number one person who needs counseling is the one who thinks they don't need counseling and doesn't think they need to talk about what's actually going on and what they feel. I wanted to be a counselor before I wanted to be a pastor. I worked, I worked with counselors, biblical counselors, before I worked for a church. And they'll say it over and over again. The best counselors will tell you, counselors need counseling. We need help understanding what we feel. We need help being able to diagnose and completely understand what's going on within our hearts. And one of my, one of my favorite pastors... Um, his name is Jeff Mangum and he, he works at the stone and he was, um, some, he was the pastor I saw when I first, I first went there. And the reason why I love Jeff so much is he's probably the most vulnerable man I've ever seen from stage. And the reason I say that is because every single time he would tell us and share with us how much he sucked as a husband and a father, which is very comforting for me one day. I was like, hey, if I can be better than Jeff, we're going to be fine. But he would always just run out with these examples of like, this, this past week, I, need, I had to ask my wife for forgiveness. I came home from work absolutely exhausted and I was angry and something. I, I spouted off a word of her that I shouldn't have and I had, to, I had to approach her and say, Honey, you know what? 
that was me, that wasn't you, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the same thing with his kids. Maybe his kids were just pests, just mess, just annoying the absolute heck out of him. I'm sure y'all can't relate to that at all. Um, and and they and they couldn't. He just couldn't handle it. And he just said things that he said something that he really wished he could have taken back, but it's already there. And they cried or they ran off because they thought they upset daddy. And he he goes and tucks them in in bed and he he tells them like, hey 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 son, hey hey girl, hey daughter, I. Daddy said some things he shouldn't have. And I'm sorry, will you you forgive me? Is that the type of environment you are creating and fighting for and working for in your home? Is that the type of environment that you are striving to have and possess with your wife and with your kids? And lastly, spiritual. Spiritual, and I I don't need to reiterate this again, but... Is Jesus encouraged or ignored in your home? Is Jesus the priority? Is Jesus the number one thing? The number one place thing in a line of other things you have going on in your life? With your family? Or is he second? Is he third, fourth, fifth? Even there? Because the call upon you is he's first and foremost, clearly by a long shot. Now, after hearing all that, it could be really easy to think like, okay, how? how? How can I even do that? That's really intimidating. I already think I suck as a human being. Like, thanks for making me feel like a horrible man, Ian. What, what the heck? Where do we possibly go from here, right? I'm not even there yet, and I'm, I'm scared that I'm just going to fail. Where do we go from here? Well, I'm, I'm grateful for the Bible, because men, we need to know this. You and I are going to fail. You and I will fail. And that's why we need Christ. That's why we need Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the freedom to be able to fall but get back up again. Because the temptation for you tonight is going to be able to wallow in self-pity here and think, man, of all the ways you've already screwed up, the ways you're not doing it right, the ways you know you could be better, and the mistake to be tonight would be, okay, I'm done. I've, I've, I've just screwed up. There's no, there's no going back. There's no trying now. It's like, no, 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 that's not true. For those of you who are in Christ, the gospel is a net that doesn't just catch you, make you lay there. It pops you back up and says, keep going. That self-pity you might feel Christ paid for that. That shame and guilt you may possess, Christ paid for that. And He didn't pay for that so you could just stand here and do nothing. He says, get up, go, get off the couch and be a man of God. That's what Jesus paid for. He came to give you a fresh start. Jesus took your mistakes, He took your shame, your neglect, and He paid for it. And you can only now pursue this through His life and through his power the biggest mistake you can make tonight is thinking okay i'm gonna do it we're gonna be men we're gonna take the hill swords up and everything the worst thing you could do is think you is is get to the top of the hill thinking you could do it by yourself if you get to the top of the hill by yourself you're gonna die but if you get to the top of the hill knowing the lord goes before you the lord is leading you the lord is at at the center of your life This can happen. And even though you fail, you can still get back up. You can still create a home and an environment that flourishes, that thrives. That's something that it's obvious that you nourish and cherish, as verse 29 says. 
because I don't, I, don't I don't want you to look past this. Remember, there are going to be plenty of days after this where you're going to get to the time where it's like, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. Like, can I just have five minutes? Can I just sit back and watch the game for two seconds? Come on. Haven't I earned that? That day is going to come. And then when that day comes and you end up saying the, same, the thing you wish you hadn't, or you want to storm out of the house, on that day, Christ paid for that too. And it is only through His gospel that you're going to be able to repent. Approach your kids and ask for forgiveness. Approach your wife and ask for forgiveness. Do not fight against Jesus. Do not resist His gospel. Embrace it. The biggest thing you could learn tonight, you could, the biggest thing I would want you to remember tonight is that surrender and dependence on Jesus is the greatest thing you could ever do as a man. Surrendering and depending upon Christ is the greatest decision and the best thing you could ever do as a man for your own life and for your family. By a long shot. And part of that is being able to own your failures. And we, we live in a society that constantly tells you, be successful, get bigger, have more things. That's what your family is going to love. But your family doesn't need a bigger house. Your family doesn't need a better car. Your family doesn't need more things. Your family needs you to be willing to admit your mistakes and you own your failures. That will transform your family in a way that you've never known before. Because there's nothing more incredible than a dad coming home and confessing to his wife or to his kids and saying, I failed today and I need Jesus to keep me going. Will you forgive me? But are you willing to actually admit your mistakes? Are you willing to own your weaknesses? Because the world does not need more men who think they're awesome. The world needs more men who are willing to confess their sin, admit their weaknesses, and be wholly dependent upon Jesus. Are you willing to do that? And I want to close with this story. Uh, if you read Second um, Samuel 11, uh, you'll read an interesting story about David. In verses 1 and 2, of Second Samuel chapter 11, it says this. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Look at that here. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And the rest of that story goes, David sought out who this woman was and he discovered it was one of his general's wives. His general, Uriah, it was his wife, Bathsheba. He didn't care. He took Bathsheba for his own and he laid with her and she became pregnant. Wait, laying, laying with a woman gets her pregnant? Yes, yes. Tell, her, tell your kids that. You're welcome. Don't ever lay with a girl gets them pregnant. It says she laid with her and she became pregnant. And David's solution to this was bring Uriah back from the field. And he said, hey, you're doing a great job. Go have fun with your wife. But Uriah... Being a man of honor said, no, 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 I cannot lay with my wife 
while my men are out dying and giving their life for you in this kingdom and for God. So David, again, not being able to have his plan go through, sends Uriah back. And then he sends a messenger out that says, hey, send Uriah to the front lines. And that's where Uriah dies. And then he takes Bathsheba for himself. And David thought he got away with everything. Commits adultery. Murders one of his, one of his closest generals. But then you see in the account, you have the prophet Nathan. God informs him, hey, this is what David did. You need to go tell him about it. You need to go talk to him about it. And he approaches David and says, hey, I know what you did. I know what happened. And you need to repent. You need to confess this. You need to deal with this. This is not being hidden in the darkness anymore. You need to drag this into the light. But I want you to notice here very clearly why it happened. Because it was in the spring of the year when the time when kings go out to battle, David remained back. He had a role. He had a design that he was supposed to step into and he didn't. He neglected it. He ignored it. And then that led to him going to the couch. And then him remaining on the couch, neglecting his call, remaining on the couch, then led to this sin, which led to adultery, which led to death. That is the literal Timeline for every single man who has ever neglected his call. And everybody's couch is different. Everybody's couch is different. Some might be a literal couch. You love the couch, you love the video games that come with it, you love the sports, you love the Netflix, you love the movies, you love the TV that comes with it. Sometimes somebody, sometimes your couch could be your job. Sometimes your couch could be this hobby. Sometimes your couch could be fitness. Sometimes your couch could be hunting or fishing or the lake. Whatever keeps you from fulfilling your role as a man and gives you a place to hide and neglect your family and keep your secrets in the dark, that's your couch. But men, it is time to get off our couch and start fighting for our family. It is time to own our failures, own our mistakes. And be the men God has called us to be. And I know immediately the, the, the temptation from here is going to be like the first thing I'm going, I go home and I pray, I hope you do. You confess to your, to your kids and you confess to your wife. But I don't want us to miss the most important thing that David introduces to us here. If you ever read Psalm 51 before, it's my favorite Psalm in the whole Bible. But it's a, it's a cry. After this happens, it's a psalm David writes after he is confronted by Nathan the prophet and has to begin to reconcile himself back to God. This is what he says. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David realized first and foremost his sin had consequences that affected the people around him. It led to the death of a general. It led to him committing adultery and bringing this girl in a situation she never asked for. And it also led to this poor son of his who had to be raised knowing he was born out of wedlock. His sin most certainly had worldly consequences, but he understood in the depths of his soul, first and foremost, he sinned against God and God alone. So tonight, men, are you willing to confess and repent the same way, not only to your families, but first and foremost to the Lord? Because a lot of you have these sins that have come from you being on the couch and you've left it in darkness for a long time. Your, whatever your couch could be, it could have just led to serious neglect of your family. It could have led to an addiction to pornography, an addiction to masturbation that you keep hiding. An addiction to a pursuit of the world, thinking if you just have more money and you have more things, that's going to make you feel better. That's going to make everything go away. That's going to make your life stress-free. Whatever that thing is for you tonight, you need to bring it to the light. You need to confess it and bring it first and foremost to God. John, 1 John 1.9, it says, if we are willing to confess our sins... He will cleanse us. He will make us whole. And we can pray a similar prayer that David has later in the same Psalm 51. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Some of you, that's the same. You need to ask that. Some of you haven't had the joy of your salvation, the joy of actually knowing the Lord for a long time. And probably what's kept you from that and experiencing that and enjoying that is all this sin that you keep hiding and you need to drag it into the light. So men, certainly for your family, certainly for your kids, for your friendships, for your wives, but most of all, for your relationship with your God, it's time to bring it into the light. It's time to get off the couch. But are you willing to step into the call that has been clearly outlined for you? Don't let anything prevent you tonight. There's nothing standing in your way. It's time to bring it into the light. It's time to own whatever it is, and be willing to be humble and, and lean in and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I surrender to you. And through embracing him, and he paid for it on the cross, he took all of it. And then he rose from the grave defeating it. means you and I have the opportunity to confess tonight and leave it behind at the cross and never see it again. Death does not have its hold on us anymore. Sin does not have its hold on us anymore. If we are in Christ, you are set free from that. You can have victory in that. But are you willing to drag whatever it is that's holding you into the light? Do you have the courage? Do you have the faith to do so? Let me close this in prayer.
Father, we thank you so much for this time and we thank you for your word. And God, I, I ask you, I, God, I, I beg you, do not let us, and this includes me, do not let me or anybody else in this room walk away tonight without confronting you. Without being able to come before you and say with a humble and honest heart, saying we've sinned against you and you alone, a holy God. And God, you don't, you, you, you don't have to come close to us. You don't have to come near to us. You don't have to take us back, but you do. Like a father comes close to his kids, you, you bring us whole and you say you love us, you forgive us, but we've got to be willing to, to let these things go. We've got to be willing to confess and we've got to be willing to bring it out in the light. even beyond this time when we leave God we try everything we can to lead our families to lead our wives to lead our kids God be with us help us remind us that we're not alone we cannot be in as we cannot be godly men in isolation we need community we need brothers so remind them let them all know everywhere in the room right now they have brothers they have people that they can confess sin with that they can fight against the enemy with, that they can wrestle through temptation with, that they can help each other with in regards to what's going on at their jobs or or at home. God, we are here for you and we are here for us to grow closer to you. God, we are a brotherhood. Help us be willing to lay down our pride and say we need you and we need each other. We cannot do it alone. So God, I beg you, Work a miracle in me. Work a miracle in us. And may us not leave until we have met with you. And may you get the glory and the honor and the praise forever. In the name of Jesus.